Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about making work better. Hello. Thank you for listening. If you're new here, this is a podcast where week by week, we try to construct and imagine how to create better workplace culture and effectively sort of pick the brains of experts and researchers who've done work on it. And uh, along the way, there's been some great episodes. I think we've got a really stimulating and interesting and timely episode for you today. Before I start, I'll just uh, give you a quick opportunity to really uh, get, well, get a free book. There's a newsletter that goes alongside this podcast. And quite often, that's the place where I share the latest research, the latest information. I share the stuff that people are talking about, how work is evolving, how we're all taking on this discussion, this debate about uh, whether we're going to switch to hybrid working or whether we're going to try and make a go of the previous way that we were operating. And you can find all of that. You can go to the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com, and you can sign up there. It's on the top right-hand side. It's also in the, uh, the, the index across the top. Now, what happened was a few weeks ago, quite often I get... Uh, people approach me saying, will you come and talk to my whole company? And one of the things they say along the way is we're buying copies of your book to to share with people. Anyway, one organization got in touch with me and uh, they sent me 50 copies of my book to sell. And, um, and then pretty shortly after I'd finished signing them and uh, packaged them back up, a guy buzzed at my front door and he said, come to collect the package. Well, the people who I'd signed them for had told me they were sending someone along to collect the package. So I handed this box of books to this gentleman and they disappeared into the ether. Now, you may well say, did you get any details from him? I'm not sure you would. I'm not, I'm not sure you would. He t- a, blo- a package is being collected. A bloke turns up at my door. He did hand me a barcode. Now, what I'll say about that is that I went to the website because I pretty quickly established that this guy had nothing whatsoever to do with the books. And uh, I went to the website and I put the barcode into the website and it wasn't recognised. It wasn't ideal. At this stage, I'm starting to think, right, I've really messed up here. 
I get a phone call from the people who were sending the courier. They say, um, will you be in at two? I'm like, good news. The, uh, the books have been collected. They said, not by us, they haven't. Anyway, what ended up happening is I had to order some new books. I paid myself. I had to order some new books. They arrived the next day, such as the incredible speed that things arrive these days. I re-signed them. And about three weeks later, someone contacted me saying, hi, um, we were picking something up from you, but you sent us uh, loads of copies of your book, which I recognize probably looked incredibly narcissistic from their point of view. Thanks for this. We were just looking to uh, get that piece of electronic gear that you wanted repaired. Um, thank you for the 50 copies of your book, but we, we wondered if you still wanted the thing repaired. Yep, yeah, I recognise all of this looks hard. The end consequence of this is I've now got, well, I had to had to give some of them. Any, I've got 30 copies of The Joy of Work to give away. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm very willing to package and post them and uh, take them. To, it'll be an outing. It'll be a trip out. I'm very willing to package and post them to people who share the newsletter. And it might be you share it with colleagues, it might be you share it with friends, it might be you share it with long-lost relatives. But if you share the newsletter, then I will be giving you the opportunity uh, to get a copy of that book for free. Um, and I've signed it. I mean, you know, as we've established, I've already signed them. Um, so you could do that. I mean, it could be a, a gift for someone. It could be something to uh, just level a table, whatever you want to do. The way you'll get that is in this week's newsletter, I explain how you do it. Like I say, you get that at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Okay, today's episode. Today's episode is um, a former guest, actually. So Kim Scott, back in the day, used to work with me at Twitter, and she wrote this book a few years ago called Radical Candor, which was about how quite often, for fear of upsetting people, we we hesitated in giving honest feedback. And she created this model of how we can give direct, radically candid feedback. So we're not, you know, tiptoeing around. We're not saying to someone, yeah, it's good. And then going back to our desks or going back to wherever we are and thinking that is appalling. What are we going to do about that? Giving direct feedback to people, um, and, and how you, sh you should set about doing it. And so I saw that she had a, another book coming out and I, uh, I contacted the publisher and they sent me her book. And so that's what you're going to hear today. So you're going to hear a discussion with me and Kim Scott. You're also going to hear from Tria Bryant. And Tria is Kim's partner and co-founder in the business she's, she's set up to support this book. You know, I have to tell you that when someone who's like an author says, we want to, I want to bring along my business partner. Just feel, oh God, here we go. She's going to be pitching the business, you know. It's like, that's not what I'm here for. It sounds a little bit like PR to me. However, the book's about diversity. And as Tria is an African-American woman, I, I felt actually it would enhance and broaden the conversation if we were able to have a, a more inclusive discussion about diversity. So that's what you're going to get today. It's a really intriguing, interesting discussion about diversity. And I suspect, depending on your take on it, you might consider some of the things in this too far. Kim talked about um, removing sight prejudice language from her book. And, and you know, I asked the question at that point, 
at what stage would we say that we're making we're making feel, people feel too guilty about some of the things we're doing? Which is not in any way to diminish the importance of all of the themes uh, along the way as well. Now, I had a big discussion with myself about this one. Along the way as well, I relate a story that is eight years old that involves me using a phrase. So I use the phrase Chinese whispers. Now, I suspect most people, British people, couldn't see the entomology of why that would be racist. We don't especially have sinophobia in Britain. Why? Anyway, if you search into it, there is an origin of it that probably is disfavourable towards Chinese people. And it's interesting, and I talk specifically through how that phrasing was used in innocence and, you know, maybe one of the consequences of it. And there's an interesting discussion about that. Um, yeah, and, and I debated removing it because I thought, man, is that like really insensitive? Does everyone think that that phrase is obviously racist? Now, what you discover is because they don't use that phrase in America, they immediately think that phrase sounds just about the most evidently racist form of language you can imagine. Um, most British people, I suspect, wouldn't see that that origin to it. Anyway, I'd love your feedback on, on what your thoughts are on that. But um, I've left the whole discussion in. Maybe it looks makes me look like an idiot. And, you know, my objective is never to make me look clever. Um, but, you know, there was a big discussion in my head. Actually, is that just completely unacceptable to include? It's in. I've left it in. So we're going to have a really interesting discussion here. This is a discussion with Kim Scott and Tria Bryant. They're talking about Kim's new book, Just Work. Uh, it's uh, As we'll talk about, we'll give you the subheading of it in there. Follow up to her smash hit, Radical Candor. So here's my discussion with Kim and Tria. Kim, thank you for joining us. And, and you've brought along Tria. Tria, I'd love you to introduce yourself and maybe you could introduce Kim for us as well. Yeah, great to be here, Trier Bryant. So I am um, Kim's co-founder and CEO of Just Work the Company. And um, Kim Scott, who we all know from Radical Candor, which everyone should have that in their leadership toolkit. And now with her new book, Just Work, How to Get Shit Done Fast and Fair. Actually, the UK version is how to get it done fast and fair. Right. They're more polite over there. Now, how about that? Because over here, we if you turn on TV at nine o'clock, no matter what channel you turn on, these these body parts bouncing all around, these <laughs> curse words, and you know, American TV and American society feels like a safe zone in comparison. So what? We took the curse word out of your book. Yes, yeah, it was not allowed. So uh, although right. I so yeah, so the American version, here's the American version, get shit done fast and fair. And I don't have an arm's reach. Uh, I've got it. There I've got you go. It. Get it done fast and fair. How about that? Yeah. Publishing. I mean, we could we could do a whole podcast discussing the curious state yes, of publishing. We could. Right? Yes, we could. We could. <laughs> Let's not play disrespect to the uh, the people who make all of this. Um, so so listen. Kim, so I opened this book, and, and as Tria so gloriously said there, Radical Candor was a phenomenon, right? I mean, it sort of, it developed a life of its own, you know. You see, it's one of those books where you see people reading it here and there. You see like a re- an occasional post. And so when I, when I heard, when the publisher said, Kim's got a new book, I was like, well, yeah, sign me up. 
Like, get get me get me to Kim straight away. And I mean, this was not the book I expected. But there's a great origin story of why this is the book you wrote at the start of the book. So I wonder if you could share what provokes you to write a book about about sort of diversity and and and, and broadening the conversation. What made you write that book? So you know, when you write a book. Bruce, about feedback. You're going to get a lot of it. And indeed, I did uh, after Radical Candor came out. And and I was at one point working with a, a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for many years and is one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And after I gave the Radical Candor talk, she pulled me aside and she said, you know what, Kim? I love the idea of radical candor. I think it's going to really help me build the kind of organization that I want. But I got to tell you, it's a lot harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. Because when I offer even the gentlest, most compassionate criticism, I immediately get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And then she said, and you know what, Kim, I'm willing to bet it's a lot harder for you than it is for the men who we both work with. And so I realized a couple of things at the same time. One was that I had not been the kind of colleague that I wanted to be for her. I had been sort of in denial about the things that were happening to her in the workplace. And then I was also in denial about the things that had happened to me. This is hard for the author of Radical Canner to admit. But I had ignored all the things that had happened to me in the course of my career. And so this book was, it was in some ways like therapy. Uh, it was, it was a, a way for me to make sense of my own experiences in a way that hopefully helps others make sense of their experiences and helps us build the kind of work environment that we all want. I mean, nobody, no leader sets out to build a work environment where it's impossible to get shit done and nobody wants to take a job to do a bad job. They, you know, almost everybody wants to do great work and yet it's so much harder than it needs to be. And so this, this book was kind of an exploration of that. Tria, hit us up. So, so, so tell us your lived experience of that because this is, this is fascinating for me because one of the intriguing things about, um, I guess one of the big books really about diversity or or about sort of extending the conversation till now has been Sheryl Sandberg's uh, book. And, and, you know, one of the interesting things about her testimony, firsthand testimony initially, like big, big, the biggest seller in the sector is that a lot of her experience was based on her subjective experience. I remember vividly, she described, um, she'd never imagined why there would be a need of parking spaces near the office door for pregnant women until she was yeah. pregnant. It's like <laughs> just a remarkable admission of a yeah. lack of empathy from someone who's professing to be, you know, an empathetic leader. It's like, I mean, come on, surely yeah. that was pretty obvious. And so, um, it's it's just you know that that was an int- intriguing sort of consequence of that. I mean, it feels a remarkably timely book, um, and I guess specifically to, to to Kim, but you know, like both of you are talking about it here, feels a remarkably timely book in terms of the place we've been through. And I think Kim, you said you've been writing it for a few years, so four years. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So it's like an incredible investment of time to realise that. Uh, for, for good that the trend is moving in in your direction and you mentioned that you set about writing it to support co-workers you've worked with in the past so is there a sense 
in you and and I, th- I think Trier articulated a bit there that you know we've failed co- co-workers in the past by putting up with things. I was on a WhatsApp group. So it's, so in the UK, outside the US, rather than iMessage, everyone uses WhatsApp and it's like, mm-hmm. it was free texts. Yeah. Come on, right. fill your boots. And, and you find yourself in some of these groups that you don't always elect to be in. And some you're in, some you don't, right. and, and you don't want to make a statement. And uh, after the Meghan Markle interview a few weeks ago, someone sent a meme that I thought was, it was, um, it was a lookalike of Oprah Winfrey that I thought was deliberately trying to diminish her to sort of reduce the, her platform. Anyway, I made a comment. I said, right, the feeling when someone starts sharing racist memes on the all-white group you're on. And it was really uncomfortable. And, and, and actually, no one responded on that WhatsApp wow. group for a day. And some of those people, you know, those like a very senior people in like media and technology business in the UK. It's like, wow. Firstly, are they seeing me as like causing trouble? And and like this, yeah. and that's why that that line you said, I've written this book to support co-workers in the past that I wish I'd spoken up for. Or yeah, I, I was just interested in in sort of playing that through. You know, how you feel we could be a better ally to co-workers past and present, really. Yeah, I love I love that you spoke up. That you were in, in the book. I, I talk about the different roles that we play. So sometimes we are we we play the role that you played in that case of of upstander. So the harm wasn't done to you, but you noticed the harm and you said something, and that is really difficult. Uh, and and often you get met with silence or or punishment when you are the upstander, but. One of the things I want to think through in the book is is how we can do more upstanding and 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 do it in a way that's most effective. Now, other times you're the leader, so you're you're leading an organization, and something happens, and it's your responsibility to respond in such a way that prevents it from happening again. And uh, and other times you are the person who's harmed, the 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 bias or the prejudice or the bullying, and we should talk about the uh, the difference between those three things in a, in a second. But it's directed at you, and then and that was hard for me to come to grips with, as I mentioned in the book. Uh, the you never want to be the perpetrator, right? You never want to be the victim. Uh, but even less did I want to be in the fourth role, which is the person who caused harm, the perpetrator, the person who who harmed someone else. And so I think it's really important. For, for me, the thing that got me started writing this book was the realization that I had failed to be an upstander, that I had failed uh, my colleagues, my, my colleague who I had worked with in the previous company, and a and, and hundred other incidents when I started thinking about it, where it felt... It felt sort of most, I, I defaulted to silence. We talk in tech a lot about the power of the mm. default. And one of the things I hope we do with this book is to change the default to silence. Uh, and, and one of the reasons I'm so excited to work with Trier and starting a company to roll the ideas out. Trier was an officer in the Air Force, and she was at Goldman Sachs, and she was at Twitter around the same time you were, and most recently, the chief people officer at Astra. And, uh, and you know, in the book, I describe my experiences. In some way, it's like I describe my experiences with a series of root canals that I had over the course. Uh, but, but Trier's the dentist. 
Trier knows how. I, I'm not a dentist. <laughs> I, I don't know how to, uh, you know, I have some ideas that I've seen work, but Trier will make sure that as organizations roll these ideas out, they roll them out in a practical mm-hmm. way. And Bruce, one thing to highlight about your story that's so important is that when we talk about the upstander, it's not, so for example, in that um, WhatsApp group chat, Meghan Markle wasn't in the group chat. Oprah wasn't in the group chat. I don't know, maybe, probably not though, right? So, and so being an upstander is not about standing up for that person. It's standing up against the injustice, right? And so I would probably call that um, bullying. So when we're talking about the core, you know, the core um, root causes of workplace injustice, there is biased prejudice, and bullying. And the simple definitions that we use is bias is not meaning it. Prejudice is meaning it. And bullying is just being mean. And I think that in your example, dropping that mean, that meme, it was a combination of prejudice and bullying. Like they meant it and they were just being mean. And you were a great upstander and called it out. And you were standing up against that injustice versus like, oh, I'm standing up for like a person. The interesting thing is what they would say deniability and the person responsible it, uh, forwards a lot of memes they're one of those friends who just forwards stuff right. all the time and <laughs> and so they were <laughs> it's like great we got it we, we've yeah, all we got, got the some answer. of those friends <laughs> we, we all we all see this on our timeline all day don't don't right. worry i'm good um but uh so they would i think rather than bullying they would say Oh, that one just slipped through or, or there was, there's a deniability to it. They just, you know, to me, it was like, it was trying to de-platform Oprah and it was trying to sort of ridicule the whole, uh, it, it was trying to sort of make the discussion that was actually of high import. It was to trivialize the whole thing. And yeah. so the person involved would say, I was being the ass hat for yeah. suddenly getting really serious. And that gives us me a really good in- entry point because I remember someone saying to me, um, uh, and a former colleague of me, mine say, said to me at uh, some point before the world paused for a year, but he said to me, you know what? I wouldn't want to be starting my career now because it's all so woke. And, you know, this is such a, an exhausting comment that people say to you because when someone says the world of work has become so woke now um it it sets you up you've either got an hour's discussion that you're never going to fully be able to articulate exactly what you want or you can just go "Mm," and just leave it anyway when someone says something like that to you when someone says you know all of this discussion all of this dialogue the discussion about prejudice and bias and bullying oh, what the world of work is so woke now where's your sense of humor give me the answer give me the the succinct way that i can g- give me yeah. the magic card that i can end that discussion because i feel incapable of articulating why i think they're wrong at the moment yeah you know i think there is humor that there's the the, the evolutionary purpose this ruins humor to talk about its evolutionary purpose. <laughs> the evolutionary purpose of humor is, is sort of what the folks at Second City call ha ha aha. You have a, it, it exposes some truth that you were, that you were formerly unaware of. But we often abuse humor and we use it to repress our awareness of things, to suppress our awareness of things. And so I would, I would, you know, I would say, look, this meme is an abuse of humor. It's used, it's used to, uh, to, to, 
make something to lessen our awareness of something. And you know what? It is, what is exhausting? What is exhausting is our bias, prejudice, and bullying. Becoming aware of them and ending them is exciting and fun as far as I'm concerned. Uh, what, what is exhausting is, is giving into them all the time and, and feeling like you see, you notice something like that meme. Somebody sends you that meme and feeling like you can't say anything. Like that, that robs you of a little bit of agency. And that's what's exhausting is when our agency gets robbed from us. So I would say the, the, it's the default to silence that's exhausting. It's not speaking up. Yeah. And Bruce, look, your answer to that is going to be very different than my answer, right? I get that question. I've had those conversations and I laugh and I just go, yeah, it is fucking exhausting. You know why? <laughs> because I live at these intersections every yeah. day. Like you're exhausted about quote unquote, becoming woke and what that means and your proximity that you are now choosing to engage in this dialogue and educate yourself. But for those that live it every day that you're causing harm, that you're on the other end of being, of, of receiving the bias, the prejudice, the injustice, right? Like it's exhausting, so welcome. And like, if we all do the work, then like maybe like we can get to a place where no one's exhausted and we don't have to deal with this, where you don't have to be woke and I don't have to experience it as a black woman. And then we can all just work and just live and move on. Right. But we're not there yet. We're, we're not close to being there. And one of the things that I hear a lot of people say is, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. No, it's actually not a marathon either. Because for those of us who have run a marathon, there's an end destination. Thank goodness. There's not an end destination with this work. As long as there is a majority, there will always be a minority and there will be a group that's marginalized who that majority is and who that minority is has evolved and changed over time. Um, but you know, this is work that we have to be committed to. It's a journey and we have to be committed to doing the work every day. And sometimes the work can manifest in these small things, these small triumphs. And that's one of the things that I, uh, that I try to talk about in the book. So for example, let's take bias, uh, a simple anecdote of bias. So Aileen Lee, is is a venture capitalist. She's going into a meeting with two colleagues who are men. And the people they are meeting with, Fortune 500 company, are these executives are all, all men. And so Aileen and her two colleagues come in. They sit down at a long conference table. And then the guys from the other side file in. And the first one sits across from the man to Aileen's left, and then the next guy sits across from the other guy, and then they all file down the table, leaving Aileen dangling by herself at the end of the... the, So kind of an unconscious bias in the seating arrangements. And uh, and then the conversation begins, and Aileen is the person who has the expertise that this potential partner wants. And so she starts talking, and these guys on the other side of the table keep turning to her her colleagues who are men and asking them follow up questions as though she as though they had spoken and not her. So we've all seen this kind of unconscious bias yeah. happen, and uh, and it's uncomfortable. And and Aileen's uh, Aileen's. A business partner stands up and he says, I think Aileen and I should switch sides, uh, switch seats. Very simple. You know, it doesn't have to be this, you know, what's wrong with you assholes? But he just, and as soon as they switch seats, the whole dynamic on, on the program in the, in the, in the meeting changes. 
and everybody recognizes what they're doing and they adjust. I mean, these guys were not jerks. They weren't trying to be jerks. They didn't mean it. Uh, they just, it was unconscious bias. And so learning how in the moment to interrupt these biases is actually, it's fun. And, and it's important to think about why, why her business partner did this. Two reasons. One, he cared about Aileen and he didn't want her to be excluded. But two, uh, she had the expertise that they needed to win the deal. <laughs> it was a practical reason as well. So that's sort of just injustice is as inefficient as it is immoral. So, so that's part of the idea of just work is, is figuring out how we can, how we can get things to a better place without, you know, some giant intervention. This didn't, this was on the one hand, it was no big deal. On the other hand, moments like that are all too rare. Yeah, I wonder if you could just sort of articulate for us. If, if someone's in their organization and, and they're trying to express to the people around them the extent of this, you know, and, and the way that Tria's explained it there is like when you're vividly perceiving it, when you're experiencing, look, it's it's evident that someone's polluting the water, that this, this is going on. But normally the C-suite, you know, Kim, you've been an advisor to CEOs. The CEOs won't witness this. They won't be aware of it. They normally don't have the profile where they, they're going to experience it. If you're going to advise someone how they could try and take stock of the extent of this in their organization, how would you advise them to try and sort of share that context for everyone? How, how can someone diagnose the bias in their own organization? So I think that the best thing to do is to create these, what Trier and I call bias interrupters. And, and because I think when you try to understand the whole big picture, a lot of people's minds shut down. So for example, when I was writing this book, I, w I was, I started, when I started out, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to interview people. I don't have enough stories. And then I realized, oh my you know, I have a story from every day and every hour of my whole career. I mean, your stories, you're so, I tell you what, Tria said it, you're incredibly uh, revealing of your own stories. Like you share plenty of yourself to, yeah. to, to help us along the way here. Yeah. And we can talk about some of those stories. I, like I opened the book with this story of a, of a time in my very first job right out of college where one, the chief of staff grabs my breast and, and my boss's boss frots me in the elevator. I didn't know what the word fraught meant until I <laughs> wrote this book. And you're in Moscow. I mean, the sense in, of, yeah. there's like, there's a, there's a Netflix miniseries in that yeah. story that you yeah. throw away in the first three yeah. pages. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then I'm called Djevushka, which means not just girl, but little girl. I mean, there's bias, there's, there's, there's physical violations, there's the whole gamut of things happening. And I sort of thought when I wrote these stories, and, and that's one of about 60 stories in the book, right? And I, one of the things I was hoping when I wrote these stories is that some of the men in, in my career would read this and, and, and then understand the whole big picture. But it had the opposite effect for some of them. They were, they shut down. They're like, you sent it to him. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> Uh, I can't read this. It's too upsetting. Uh, I didn't send it to the perpetrators. I sent it to friendly. Uh, well, <laughs> right, okay. I did send it. I to thought you were tracking down the man from Moscow and yeah, sending well, him your book. 
those guys are dead. So uh, the, the, <laughs> the, this message is don't fraught Kim in the elevator. It's very dangerous. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, the, the thing that I realized is that it's actually easier to take it in small chunks for people to understand. So these bias interrupters, when you with your team create a shared vocabulary, because we all have these moments like you had on this WhatsApp group where we're kind of gobsmacked. We can't believe somebody just said or did something and we, and we don't quite know how to categorize it, but we know something's off. And so we work with leaders to establish a shared vocabulary on their team of, of what is, what's the, what's the word or phrase, sorry, that's my dog rumbling. What's the word or phrase that we're going to use to, to make it clear that something is just, that bias has just occurred in this meeting. So it could be bias alert. Some teams like to use Daniel Kahneman's language from thinking fast and slow. Trier has worked with teams that use a purple flag. And, and basically what this phrase is, is it's a, it's, it's a shared vocabulary. So everybody understands that it's bias. It's not a physical violation. I think one of the things that happens is we conflate bias and sexual assault, for example. And those are two very different things. We need to treat them differently. So this is bias. It's not a federal offense, but it does need to be corrected. And then it's really crucial to create a shared understanding of how to respond when your bias has been flagged. And you get basically two choices. Either you say, oh, I get it. I'm sorry. Uh, it I'm going to try not to do that again. Or you say, I don't quite get it. Can you explain to me after the meeting? And the reason to move so quickly is that bias should be flagged in every single meeting. If you're not, if there's not at least one purple flag flown per meeting, then you're not looking for bias because I promise you it's happening. For listeners, could you give us an example of like one of the casual ways that these things might be sort of spat out in a meeting and people don't realize they're doing it? Well, uh, yeah, you want to talk I about what I, what I said? <laughs> Tria rolled her eyes there. No, so like, she, oh, yeah, here we no, go. Here's I mean, some like, examples. Can, there's, so, you know, it can be something as small as, um, I've been in organizations where I'm the chief people officer, the VP of people on the executive team. And if you come into the office and I'm greeting you and I'm welcoming you because, you know, hospitality and can I offer you a drink? Here's the kitchen. We have amazing snacks because we're a tech company. Um, but, you know, you treat me and you engage with me and make comments because you think that I'm the receptionist because you see a black woman who's working at the company and I'm greeting you coming in the door because I just happened to see someone was waiting, right? Um, I have been treated as a receptionist. I have had flowers delivered to me at Twitter. And as I was bringing them up, Twitter security stopped me and was like, oh, we'll take it from here and take it up because they thought that I was delivering the flowers. But I actually had to go down and get the flowers because a black male was delivering them and they wouldn't let him come up and bring the flowers up to the I mean, front. layers desk, right? of that, right? God. Yeah. But then it could also be something like, you know, Kim, the other day um, we were talking, we had like a weekly team meeting talking about the week and, you know, Kim had made a comment that was like, Hey, just, just put it on the calendar because I'm a slave to my calendar. And, you know, we said purple flag. That's, that's a, you know, that is bias and she didn't mean oh, it. Okay. But, the word. okay. Right. And, and, um, or, um, or we were talking about, um, you know, 
something where she said uh, being, you know, a master to or having three masters or something. And it's like, hey, that's bias, right? You didn't mean it, but thinking about the language that we use and what it means behind there and, and the harm that it could mean or cause. So bias can come in many, many different you know, forms and shapes. And then there's prejudice, but prejudice is harder because things are not unconscious bias. Prejudice is when people really double down on it. So I worked at a company where, you know, there was a hiring manager who ultimately didn't make a hire to a black woman because she wore her natural hair out the way that I'm wearing it right now, because she said, oh, we can't put her in front of the business because her hair wasn't straight and long. And she said like our hair. And, um, and so she believed that and she doubled down on, on that. And that was prejudice because she meant it. So these things happen all the time, you know, whether we're picking up on it or not, but who is picking up on it the most are those from those underrepresented groups from these marginalized communities. And so that's where we have to listen and we need to learn and we need to create the space with these bias interrupters that people can throw the flag and it can be, it can be a, a learning opportunity for everyone. Tell me this and both of you and Tria, I'd love your perspective on this because to me, to some extent, you know, one of the things I've written in my notes here is that like, how do we avoid grandstanding? How do we avoid, and it's because it's in the book, how do we avoid sort of this becoming a battle of, of, morality people taking moral positions and i wonder if the bias thing is the the way you've articulated there almost feels like a game that we're all playing that we don't realize how this pervades let me give you a perfect example so my boss at twitter forgive the fact that we're all talking about twitter here just (laughs) coincidentally we've all worked at twitter Kim, we've not even heard Kim's war stories. Kim was the advisor to the chief exec. (laughs) I worked at Twitter for eight years. Trey, you worked at Twitter. Anyway, but when I was at... So let me give an example of bias that I didn't even know was bias. Okay. Right, so my my boss was um, American-Chinese, Chinese-American, and a wonderful guy. Truly like the one of the most benign, kindest guys you've ever met. Anyway, um, these... these, and, and the UK, it's fair to say, because we don't have the vivid um, racial history that I think the US has got. These things are, are sort of are conscious, but like less visceral, I think, is probably a way to articulate it. Sometimes, you know, when we look at the, uh, the situation in the US, we deeply empathize, but it doesn't feel like it's a war that's as vivid as it is here. Anyway, um, we there's a phrase in the English language where Americans talk about the game of telephone. The in the UK we call that Chinese whispers. Now, in the entomology of that experience, I have no doubt that this comes from Sinophobia, where you know a century ago, two centuries ago, when you know we we sort of characterised Chinese people unfairly we this racism at the heart of that but no one in britain would even recognize it it's such an obvious phrase anyway i was chatting to my colleagues and uh and i was and so you know the game of telephone is where someone's told someone so Mm -hmm. i I said to to one of my colleagues oh you know i think what's going on here is there's a bit of chinese whispers well firstly firstly you know this bias innate in that phrase that no one in britain i'm i'm Genuinely honest with you, if I even mentioned to anyone there was bias in that phrase, people would go, people would pause for a minute, even today, and go, 
I guess there must be somewhere in history, but no one would consider that genuinely. Um, and uh, anyway, but the fact that also my colleague had that um, uh, had that origin himself, it probably looked like I was maybe flying a Confederate flag at home and was yeah. just just about the most disagreeable person to come together. Genuinely. And so the way you've articulated it along the way there, and this bias, prejudice, bullying framework is really helpful. But I wonder at times if these such a benign, innocent, but ignorance about the bias element, that it's the person responsible is not necessarily even conscious that they're doing something wrong. That right. It's almost the, the way, the, the way that you've articulated the purple flag and the things there, it's almost like, Oh wow, we've just spotted one. Yeah, you know, yeah, maybe half of can, the room knew about, and, and half and the room didn't know a, about. It needs to be a learning moment, Bruce. What it is is that, like, like let's let's just be honest, right? Most white people would say, "Oh, I never thought of that," or "That wasn't," or "Oh, Absolutely. I never really thought about that." But for you know those that are from the AAPI community, they are, and things that are biased that are harmful in language, right? But we've we've transitioned to a time where. I remember when I first entered the workplace, there were things that people said all the time that were harmful, that were words. And it was like, yeah, I know they don't mean it, but it's offensive and you don't say anything. But like, we are beyond those times. We have evolved. We need to call it out. We need to stop it. And it is harmful. And here's the other thing is that there is an imbalance of responsibility that we feel like we have to educate ourselves. So the example that I've said is that when I entered the workplace, I knew, no one really had to tell me. I just knew that I had to be educated on white culture to be successful. After work drinks, I need to be able to understand white culture and have conversations with my white co- colleagues and peers and be able to keep up with those conversations, right? But do you use the I phrase do, code switching in the US? Um, they, they well, call- code switching is a little different. Code switching is when you're actually changing your language and vernacular um, right. or potentially your presence. But I'm talking about, like, you know, um, I don't know if this will resonate with the UK <laughs> audience, but like there is this song that when a lot of, when, when, White people are out at the bar and they're drinking. They start singing, <laughs> Sweet Carolina. Dun, dun. Right. Okay. Right. So I know the words to those songs. I know that that happens. However, does Kim know the words to Before I Let Go by Maze and Frankie Beverly, right? Which is, or what to do when that song comes on, which like, in the black community, like almost every black person knows. No, because there is this burden for non-white people that we have to understand white culture for comfortability, but also be successful. And that's not reciprocated. And so by focusing and to say, I'm going to be educated, I'm going to do the work myself to just understand what is appropriate, what's not appropriate so that I'm not doing harm. And if people feel like that's too much of a lift, I would encourage them to come talk to me or to go talk to someone and have a real conversation about how much work, like when people say, I think that there's this, there's this common theme in non-white households with children that like all of our parents tell us like we have to work twice as hard. But what I was explaining to someone the other day is when someone said, Trier, when my mom said, Trier, you have to work twice as hard. She wasn't saying I have to work twice as hard on like that same project. It was just, I have to do that same project as my white peer, but there's other work that I have to do around it to be successful, to be seen and to navigate that environment. So 
and the and and the and the more we can root out these these phrases and things that we do and expect uh, uh, that we aren't aware of as you say it's it is it's not that hard to do like when when yeah. trier when trier pointed out to me my use of the master slave metaphor i was really grateful like it's not that hard for me to choose other words and in fact it's good for me to choose other words and it's good for me in two ways one, I don't do harm to colleagues who I care deeply about. And two, I choose better words. I choose better metaphors. This is something I really learned in the course of writing this book is, is that, for example, I, I, I hired somebody, a bias buster, and, she, and, and she actually looked for all of these problematic words and phrases that, that I used. And one of them was, uh, site metaphors, sloppy site metaphors, where what I meant was, I don't understand. And what I said was, I don't see. So in, in the beginning of the okay. book, I talk, I talk about, we can't solve problems we refuse to notice. Early on, I wrote, we refuse to see. And, uh, and I, I realized that she was right, that these metaphors were, they were sloppy. So I wanted to change them for that reason. But I also wanted to change them because one of the other people who was helping me edit the book is a, a historian who is blind. And he's an amazing thinker, uh, super, super editor. If you're going to write a book, you should hire Zach Shore. Uh, and, uh, and, and just a great person. The last thing I wanted to do was use language that, that was going to harm him. And, uh, and so I thought I had really solved this problem. I thought I had fixed it. And right before I sent the book to my editor, I did a search. And in a 350-page book, guess how many sloppy site metaphors I had? 99. 99. Yeah. Like three per page. And the, and the this raises, this yeah. raises a big point though, Kim, because, yeah. and, and to both of you, but I think, you know, look, the patriarchy, the white patriarchy, but the incumbency of the people, a lot of people in work right now are worried that there's someone somewhere they're offending. And, you know, it's, it's why your bias prejudice bullying framework is helpful to some extent because the bias thing is often uh, unconscious and, you know, we're doing it and we don't mean to do it and, you know, please don't fire us. But like, there's a concern that whether it's the non-site community or, or you know, it's, it's people that forgive us through our privilege, we don't always have an awareness of all of these areas, but there's a concern that there's someone somewhere we're offending. Yeah, uh, or p that people are offending. I don't, I don't mean to sort of represent any sort of voice, but um, and 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 that's what I'm I'm interested about because you know if we're going to articulate, if we're going to be the advocates, if we're going to be the champions for this movement, then we need to demonstrate that we're not just going to be the people taking the fun out of work, but actually like there's there's a really brilliant world that we can live in. Yeah, if we just get you know. It's, it's why I think the metaphor of marathon and sprint is so unhelpful. It's like, let's just put the right kit on. It's the kit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a decision before we even leave the house Yeah, that, you know, is, is, is really helpful. But, you know, I guess the fearful people, that person telling me that the world of work has become so woke, that person might say, you know, how was I to know that I was using a site metaphor? I've just learned English and I've, yeah. I've clumsy. And, and I guess, you know, the thing that I'm in, 
I'm interested about is if we can take the stigma out of making some of these unconscious mistakes, if, you know, being culpable of a bias is something that you go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. My bad, but I've learned today rather than I've gone home and I'm worried that I'm going to be on a disciplinary, you know, like I'm on a pip because I said something that I shouldn't have said. And I think, you know, that's an interesting framing for me. Yeah, that's why it's so important to create, to to normalize bias interruption. You're not going to get fired for saying something biased, uh, but 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 you have to exhibit some interest in learning, uh, and and not. I mean, the problem with the person who says oh, everything's so woke, it's like, okay, so do you want to continue to make the same mistake over? Like, what's up with that? So so I think that's part of it. But the other part of it is to realize that thing, it's not all unconscious bias. Sometimes, as Trier explained in her story, it is a very conscious prejudice. This woman was refusing to hire someone and, and, and stating explicitly and consciously it was because of her hair. Because of her hair. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So, so here we need something stronger than a bias interruption. We need, we need organizations that create codes of conduct, and we need to be able to use an it statement. And an it statement explains, sort of refers to that line between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want, but they can't impose that belief on others. They can't do or say whatever they want. So I would like to think if I had been in that meeting with Trier, I would have said one of three things, either an it statement that referred to common sense. It is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of her hair. Or I could have appealed to the code of conduct at the company. It is an HR violation not to hire someone because of their hair. Or if we were in California or one of a lot of other places, I could have appealed to the law. It is illegal not to hire someone because of their hair, actually. And, uh, and the benefit of that, j- just for, for the audience, is what you depersonalize. You, you turn something into objective fact rather than subjective it's, opinion. It's not really that it depersonalizes. And it's not... It's not even necessarily objective fact. It just makes it clear where the line is between that. I'm not going to argue with her about her belief about hair because I, I, I don't have time. I want to get shit done and I don't want to have that. Yeah, get it done. Sorry. As Toni Morrison said, like the problem with, with racism is that it's a giant distraction. It prevents me from doing my work. And I think the same can be said of sexism and, and, and any of these other workplace injustices. So I don't want to argue with you about your belief because that's a waste of my time. But I do want to make it really clear to you that you cannot impose that belief on me or on other people. And so that's the value of an it statement is it's like, you can believe that if you want, but you can't exercise, you you can't, you can't translate that belief into your hiring decisions. It's not, it's not, it's either it's ridiculous or it's a HR violation or it's illegal or all three. Uh, So, so that's the value of an it statement. So, and and with bullying, you actually want to use statement. So bias, you want an I statement. I don't think you meant that the way it sounded. With with prejudice, you want an it statement. With bullying, you want a you statement. And a you statement sort of pushes the other person away. And if an I statement invites them in to see things from your perspective, to understand, I'm going to throw a purple flag on myself, to understand things from, from my perspective. Where was uh, the purple flag there? I oh, said you saw it. See, yeah, damn, yeah, damn. yeah. 
But see, but we should give ourselves points because I'd love to yes. know. I'd love to incentivize myself to spot this stuff. Exactly, exactly. That's the that's the brilliance, I think, of of the of the I statement and the bias interrupter. So it, it was my daughter who explained this to me about responding to bullying. So she was getting she was in third grade. She was getting bullied at school, and I was encouraging her to use an I statement when you say that I feel sad. And she looked at me like I was missing something elemental. And she kind of banged her fist on the table. And she said, Mom, he is trying to hurt my feelings. Why would I tell him he succeeded? And I'm like, oh, you're right. And so what you want from when you're confronting a bully is, is you want to you wanna put the onus on them to answer your questions or to respond to you. You want to get on your front foot, not on your back foot. I think there's a boxing metaphor in here, but I've never boxed. Anyway, so you want to make sure that you are saying either you can't talk to me like that, you're pushing them away, or if that feels like it's going to escalate too quickly, you can ask them a question. What's going on for you here? What, why are you why are you talking to me this way? And now all of a sudden they're answering your questions and you're not in a submissive role. It's a two part question here for you, Kim. Um, firstly, the, the way that this often lives in organizations is that people will say, as we observe the hierarchy, they'll say, as the hierarchy gets more extreme, you know, the bosses are quirkier. You have to put up with the way that this person, the way that this person emails, the way that this person texts. And of course, you know, as we've articulated that that's privilege that if you're a woman or if you're, you know, uh, a black woman or a, a Asian woman or, you know, whatever group, um, you often, often don't have that privilege of being a rude emailer or a yeah. rude uh, person in, and, but we don't witness that. And in your prior jobs, Kim, you've been the CEO whisperer. So you've been like a, a consultant to, I'm, I'm intrigued how your process works, but you go into the room with chief execs, you, you sit down with, with bosses and you talk, chat to them. Now, but, but what we've articulated in the first part of that, probably the worst practitioners of this are going to be chief execs. So how do you square those two things, either in the, your old world where you were a, a, a CEO whisperer or when you're observing sort of how this, this bias often ripples upwards through an organization? If you were to walk into some of those rooms you've been in in the past, and and talk now, represent you know people now. What would you change, and and what would you say to chief execs? Because I think that's going to be people listening to this are going to be thinking the biggest problem in my organisation is the CEO. Yeah, the biggest problem in my organisation is the C-suite. Yeah, if we could yeah. just change that guy's attitude, three quarters of the problems. You know, Twitter bans Trump. We've all worked there. Twitter yeah. bans Trump. Three quarters of the problems on Twitter have gone away overnight. Yeah. Like sometimes this one ass hat that just makes so much trouble for the rest of the organization. And, you know, if you're in an organization, sometimes this one guy. So that's why I'm intrigued. What would new you say to old you about what you can say to leaders in this situation? So, so there's a couple of things. One is 
power corrupts. I'm just going to say power is bad. Not only does it corrupt, it's just bad. And, and it often makes people behave in ways that they wouldn't behave if they didn't have the power. And so the first thing that I will only work with leaders who believe in checks and balances, who are willing to, who are willing to put a check on their own power, because when they don't, when they aren't willing to do that, then they, they, they almost inevitably are going to become the worst offenders. So, so one of the things that Trier and I talk a lot about is creating organizations with checks and balances. And there's, there's a lot, there's a, I'm going to send you the link. There's a great article. Every, you know how every once in a while you read something that explains everything. There's this great article that Deb Grunfeld at Stanford and a bunch of other psychologists wrote about how power makes people more likely actually to, to believe that they are sexy, for example, and then to approach others. Uh, and it's not that they are, it's not that they are more sexy. They are not, but they believe they are because of their power. So, so there's, there's a lot of problems with power. So checks and balances are part of it. And then the other thing that I recommend that leaders do is they, they need to begin to quantify their bias and the bias in their organization. So they need to measure what matters at the, at the recruiting stage and who they make offers to and how pay, and how pay is structured and how promotions get, get done and get, get, and how those decisions get made. Because when, when you start to cut the data and look at it by race, by gender, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna notice some trends. I can almost promise you. And so I think if, if, if we say that, that bias and prejudice plus power equals discrimination and, and bullying plus power equals harassment and touch plus power equals physical violations. And, and the things that leaders can do, I mean, there's a lot more underneath the hood here, which we can go into more detail about if you want. But the thing, the two things that leaders can do to, to, to not be corrupted by their power is to put checks and balances on their own power and on the power of everyone in their organization. And again, to quantify bias in the way it plays out in, in decisions. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we all worked at Twitter and the thing that vividly is going through my head here is that <laughs> we worked with a truly wonderful person yes. as the chief exec. And like, you know, got so much time for him, truly well-motivated. But when I worked, I spent a lot of my Twitter time at Twitter being deeply troublesome because we were experiencing issues with um, user abuse and user abuse falls without exception on minorities, race, you know, minority ethnic uh, groups and women without exception. And we had a situation where for a long time we were saying, I was articulating, I was causing, it was being a problem for the organization because I was saying, you don't understand as a very rich Silicon Valley white guy, what's happening. And, and my job is to represent these people here. And I'm telling you now, we are not doing enough. And there was like this dissonance because, because, you know, at one stage, Twitter was going to change the mute feature uh, from being something that women were screaming, do not change the way that this is working. There was no block feature. I, I don't think block even existed at that stage. Yeah. But do not change the way that this is working um, and make it worse. And Twitter was just pretty much going to optimize it for what the C-suite wanted. And it was like yeah. this really 
vivid moment where good people can do bad things because they don't have an awareness of something outside of them. And so like, you know, that's why I'm just, I'm interested in examples of, of how everyone can have a greater empathy for the world around them. Because quite often, even good people who tell themselves, we're, we all, we all drive on a narrative without exception. Everyone drives on a narrative that we are the good guys. Yes. Me. And the people who like me are the good guys. Even if we're stealing car stereos, even if we're stealing cars, we're stealing because we believe that we're the good guys stealing from the, the bad guys with all the money. Like, we've all got a bias to, to telling our narrative in a, in a good way. And, um, you know, I'm just sort of intrigued how sometimes we, we need to sort of articulate this in a, in a more convincing way for people in power. That's, that's sort of what's going through my head. Well, yeah. I, what stands out to me, Bruce, is something that you said, you said about empathy. And what a lot of people don't think about is that empathy doesn't just come out of the ether. Like it just doesn't fall from the sky onto us, right? Like you have to have experiences that will invoke you to have empathy and you have to be conscious about that. And so I think that where I have seen like Twitter is a great example where there were leaders that even I had conversations with to say, you don't understand this because you have not spent the time to have conversations or get to know people who are experiencing this and have the empathy. And I know for me, I remember the first time I was trolled or harassed on the platform and that changed my perspective on how we should be combating abuse, right? I had one point of view, but I had never really felt it. And I remember what it felt like. I, I tweeted something that I remember I got pulled over for the first time ever in San Francisco and I got a speeding ticket and I tweeted, Hey, Twitter, like, do I not get out of speeding tickets because I work at Twitter? Because I was making a reference to like being a veteran in the military. When you get pulled over in the U S normally you show your military ID and it's like, thank you for your service. You get out of a speeding ticket. And I just, it was a slight joke and it was an inappropriate joke, but who came after me were like the mothers of drunk drivers came after me and all of these people about dropping stats and the harm that's done for people who speed and lives have been killed. And and it was a, it was an educational moment. And I took it for that, but it was like people were then like harassing me, and it went. It was crazy how deep, how quickly it got very deep. But that experience allowed me to have so much more empathy for those who were experiencing that abuse on the platform, and on a whole different level than I had in that one situation. But it made me a better leader to go to those meetings and bring that empathy and bring that perspective. And so I think that like a lot of times we we want to take what we have from our experiences and solve problems, but sometimes we need to pause and we need to think about our proximity to those that, you know, these 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 solutions are really going to benefit. And how do we have experiences with empathy, which I truly believe is the catalyst for change. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, but it, it needs more than empathy. It needs the right people in the room, uh, actually. So I was, I'll tell an anecdote from another large tech company, not Twitter, but that has a big platform where I used to work once upon a time. <laughs> and so we were debating a policy, uh, a policy about when we would take down hate speech on, on this platform. And, so we were, we were sort of going back and forth and it was abstract. And the CEO of the company, so it's, there, it is a predominantly white room. There's, I think, one black man in the room at the time and, and, and a very wealthy room, 
the, uh, the CEO was, I don't know, a DECA billionaire or something. And, and he says, trying for empathy, he says, okay, so let's imagine I am a poor black woman. And it was like, it was all wrong. Everything about the, I mean, and he meant it. He, he was not, tr- he was not trying to do harm, but he, it became clear to me that we did not have the right people in the room to make the decision, uh, that, that we couldn't in such a homogenous situation yeah. make, exactly. make that decision. Uh, I'll, I'll give you, go, go ahead, Trier. No, just saying, that's a good example. Yeah. Uh, so, so proximity was not enough. Empathy was not enough. We needed different people in the room. And it wasn't enough to have one black man in the room because, it is, it is so hard. I'll, I'll give you another example from another different meeting where there was a debate about, it was a hiring meeting, about a promotion meeting. There was a deb- debate about whether or not they should promote this woman. And the leader in, in that organization said, yeah, let's promote her. She's got great tits and ass. And there was only Shush. one. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, this, this, if I told you the name, you'd recognize it. And, um, and... <laughs> There was only one woman in the room, and she, and she decided, you know what, it is not my job to speak up in this moment. And there were a lot of other men I know in the room who were horrified by what, but nobody was the upstander. Nobody said, you know what, not okay, not okay. By, by, I mean, at the very least, bias alert. Uh, and, and, but nobody said it, the default to silence help. And it is, so we got to have the right people in the room so that this kind of blatant stuff gets called out. More from my discussion with Kim Scott and Tria Bryant after this. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now back to my discussion with the author of Just Work, Kim Scott, and her business partner, Tria Bryant. So we're, we're almost out of time. So like, I, I wonder from both of you if like you... I guess, you know, the critical thing of, of a book like this and a movement like this is that quite often we can find ourselves getting um, tangled up in the sort of the the admonishments, the the sort of the the um, the policing of the situation. And I guess, you know, we don't always articulate the promised land of where we're going to, why why work can just be just a much better version of work. And I guess, you know, your title, Just Work, articulates 
that in in a snappy sense but i just i I wonder if you could both just say look you know actually the reason why all of this matters is because we can create a version of work which dot 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 i I wonder if you could just give us a sense of why actually look all of this is in service of a better way of us doing our jobs Uh, so at the very end of the book i talk about the joy of 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 doing this work because like all work when we do it well and we improve this our the, the the way that we work together and the actual work that we do it's there's there are very few thrills that are greater it's like the thrill of playing in an orchestra and everybody is doing their and, and you're making music together that you could never that you could never make separately and you're making better music because you have more musicians like it's no good to have just i mean i guess the solos okay but it's there's there's a special thrill of collaboration that there's a there's a film about roving mars and the person who heads the, the who headed up the mission said of these robots they burst the bounds of our brains no one person can possibly understand this and so to me that is that is the reason to do this is is because we will love our work more we will love each other more and we'll do better work i just i mean bruce if we can just cut the noise and cut the crap and just work um i just think about for every mo- for every minute and second that i've had to spend in my career thinking about the bias the prejudice the bullying that i experienced that was every minute and second that i wasn't doing my work so imagine that in your workplace of how much time is wasted and exhausted by this burden and this harm that is put onto folks and it is um and it is mostly underrepresented professionals that have to deal with this. And so I just believe that we should all have an equitable opportunity to come in and do our best work. Imagine that you were leading a software team and somebody said, I don't, it's no fun to find bugs. Let's just eliminate our bug tracking. <laughs> like you're not going to make great software in that case. You, you got you to gotta root this stuff out. Some uh, a wonderful discussion. I, I've absolutely adored that. Thank you so much for both taking the time to sort of talk through these things. And uh, Kim, I think you're going to have another hit book on your hands here. What from will you your, do? What will you write next? From what your, will you write next, Kim? From, from your mouth to God's ears. My next one is going to be a novel. Get ready. Okay. <laughs> okay. The Cookie Monster, I think it's going to be a, called. A gritty detective book. I like it's it. It's going to be a gritty Silicon Valley story. Oh, come on. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm there for that. Show where all the bodies are buried, but That's like right. with vaguely hidden characters. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you, Tria. Thank, Thank you, Bruce. Thanks for having us. Thank you to Kim. Thank you to Tria. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I got a a tweet from someone a few weeks ago saying, when are you going to do more on diversity? So yeah, my bad. The uh, no doubt that is definitely something I need to cover better. And and I've got it in my mind. I'm I'm sort of searching out for for good people. Certainly in terms of the people I've invited, uh, I've got some, some voices on that. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. In the run-up to the summer, I'm going to try and keep a really regular uh, flow of episodes coming up. What I'd ask in return is if you enjoyed this, share it. 
or write a rating. I never ask for this podcast blurb, the stuff that people normally ask. But by all means, you know, please go to to the your podcast app of choice and rate it. I'd be really appreciative of that. It it helps spread the word and grow the audience. I've been Bruce Daisley. Always welcome people linking into me. You can always get a hold of me by replying to my newsletter. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.